Father, we thank you for all the ways that you provide for us and bless us and sustain us and carry us along. And today, as we continue to work our way through the book of Acts, we uh, give you thanks for this um, incredible truth that you preserve for us. So help us to give uh, to give us insight and understanding of these things that you've written for us uh, so that ultimately we might have hope. And uh, we ask all this for Jesus' great name's sake. Amen. All right, y'all, I think last week we left off on page 35 uh, in your notes. We're in chapter 6. Um, and where we are, we, we, we're looking, we're in, we're in the section. This, this section of Acts uh, goes, uh, the larger, um, the larger th- uh, thread that we've been following really began in like chapter 3. And it's going to move on through until we get to chapter 8. And uh, part of what Luke is doing is showing both as this early church starts to form, as the disciples come together, they deal with these internal problems and also external threats that come against them. And so last week we, we looked at some of the external threats where the leaders of Israel are really getting amped up against them because there's so many people that are becoming disciples of Jesus that it's threatened their power and position. They're becoming jealous of what's happening. And then uh, we have an internal problem that we looked at last week where some of the uh, Hellenistic Jewish widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of things. And so uh, they went to the 12 apostles and said, hey, we need to get this thing worked out. And as they did, they... Uh, set aside seven men uh, of good reputation, full of the spirit and wisdom to oversee this distribution ministry. And we had the seven names given in Acts 6, 5. Uh, Stephen, the most prominent, Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, um, Timon, Parmenas, Nicholas, they're all named there. And Stephen is the main one. Um, Stephen is really critical. Page 35 Stephen is debating with some of the men from the Freedmen Synagogue, which apparently is a synagogue made up of Greek-speaking Jews, Hellenistic Jews, as we talked about last week. And they're not able to overcome him. They're not able to stand up against uh, Stephen's defense and the words that he's saying. And so they go before the leaders of Israel and they bring false witnesses and they say that, you know, Stephen is speaking blasphemous words against the, both the temple and the law. And uh, so now they, they've stirred up the leadership and the leadership is going to uh, bring Stephen uh, before themselves and, and hear what he's got to say. And so that's where we left off last week on page 35. And as we said, I think last thing we talked about on 615, chapter 6, verse 15, the very last Line, last sentence in that second paragraph there on page 35. It says, All who were sitting in the Sanhedrin looked intently at him, at Stephen, and saw that his face was like that of an angel. And we said that that's not some kind of, you know, that, he's, that doesn't mean he's rosy-cheeked cherub thing. It's that he has this glow to him as if he's been in the presence of God, right? That's the idea. It's a, you know, he, he's, he's appearing powerful, uh, and clearly he's going to be inspired by the Holy Spirit to give the message that he's about to give here. And that's what we're going to get into today. Uh, Stephen's speech, chapter 7 of Acts, pages 36, 37, 38, and 39 
longest speech we've had so far. Uh, and this one is fantastic. Um, and the, the, the really interesting thing is, uh, let me just talk to some big points about this speech. They have brought Stephen before the leaders to answer for these charges of speaking against the temple and against the law. And Stephen is not going to make a defense for himself against that at all. Right. Uh, he's he's not going to try to get himself out of trouble. In fact, he's going to try to get himself in more trouble by saying, listen, leaders, I don't even know why we're arguing about this. I'm going to tell you your history. And the history is this. You're just like your forefathers. Your forefathers have killed every prophet that God has sent. And now they've even killed the Messiah. And y'all are guilty of all of this. That's the problem. Right. Powerful sermon. Right. I ah, love it. Uh, and he's going to go through the Old Testament. He's going to go through the Hebrew scriptures and just kind of lay out the story that gets us to where they are at the present moment. And so uh, we're going to read this uh, bit by bit. And, and I'm going to stop and uh, with each chunk and say a few things. You know, it, it would be good to read through it as a whole, but I hope you've done that by now. Um, but. For the sake of time, I'm just going to read a chunk of it, make a few comments, and then we'll go on. There's not that much that's difficult to understand in this sermon. It's really, it's really easy to follow. Uh, in fact, I used, to, I used to have an assignment when I was teaching at the Bible college where I would have people uh, analyze this sermon because it gives you the story of, of the history of Israel in the Old Testament, which is really, uh, really fantastic the way Stephen lays it out. So let's begin. Page 36. Acts 7, 1, uh, at the top of the page there. We'll start reading and go through it. So the high priest asked Stephen, he says, Is this true? That is, have you been speaking against the law and against the prophets? Uh, I'm, I'm sorry, against the temple? And so Stephen begins in 7, 2. He says, Brothers and fathers, listen. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia before he settled in Haran. And he said to him, get out of your country and away from your relatives and come to the land that I will show you. And then he came out of the land of the Chaldeans and settled in Haran. And from there, after his father died, God had him move to this land you now live in. He didn't give him an inheritance in it, not even a foot of ground, but he promised to give it to him as a possession and his, to his descendants after him, even though he was childless. Uh, it's really interesting that 7-5 there, right, uh, that God has given uh, uh, the land, promised to give the land as a possession to Abraham. That is what is in our headlines right now, Amen. right? The, I mean, that's the issue that's still central to history and even current affairs in 2023, 2,000 years later after Stephen said that. We, we could say a lot about that, but we, we, let, let's see what Stephen says about it. 7-6, uh, God spoke in this way. His descendants would be strangers in a foreign country, and they would uh, enslave and oppress them for 400 years. That, so that's talking about uh, Israel being enslaved in Egypt for the 400 years there. Verse 7, he says, I will judge the nation that they will serve as slaves, God said. And after this, they will come out and worship me in this place. Uh, that's talking uh, probably... Um, about the message that he gave to Moses at Mount Sinai. Uh, but in this, in this context, it's talking about that the Israel will return to the land to worship God in the land. 7-8, then he gave uh, him the covenant of circumcision. And after this, he fathered Isaac, 
uh, and circumcised him on the eighth day. And Isaac did the same with Jacob and Jacob with the 12 patriarchs. So there you get the line that gives us the nation of Israel, uh, Abraham to Isaac to Jacob to the 12, right? And so here he's talking about the birth of the nation and how, right, every, all the Jews would have known this. All the leaders would have known this so far. I mean, they're going to know everything that he's talking about here. Uh, there's not much more to say about that uh, other than to say uh, really important that he's drawn on the narrative from Genesis 12 through 15 in this, in the episode out of Abraham's life, which is common knowledge. And Israel has built a lot of their tradition around. So um, nothing new there. Acts 7, 9 says, now the patriarchs became jealous of Joseph and sold him into Egypt. But God was with him and rescued him out of his troubles. Um, what's the key word there? The patriarchs became jealous. Uh, you remember that? Uh, if you look back over to page, um, if you look back over to page 31, just, just for a second, uh, I'm going to make some of these connections as we go, even though it's going to dis disrupt the flow of the sermon. Back on page 31, right in the middle of the page, Acts 5, 17 through 42, and, and this is really the beginning of this whole episode that the Stephen speech is going to be a conclusion to. You can see in 517 it says, Now the high, high priest took action. He and all his colleagues, those who belonged to the party of the Sadducees, were filled with jealousy. jealousy right? So just like the patriarchs were jealous of Joseph and sold him into slavery, so now the leaders, the Sadducees, are jealous of what's happening through the apostles and the disciples. And they're going to turn on them as well. And they already have. Uh, back on page 36, right in the middle of Acts 7.10, it says, He, um, God, gave Joseph favor and wisdom in the sight of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, who appointed him ruler over Egypt and over uh, his whole household. And then a famine and great suffering came over uh, all of Egypt and Canaan, and our ancestors could find no food. And when Jacob heard that there was grain in Egypt, he sent our ancestors the first time. And then the second time, Joseph was revealed to his brothers, and Joseph's family became known to Pharaoh. Joseph then invited his father Jacob and all of his relatives, 75 people in all, and Jacob went down to Egypt. He and our ancestors died there and were carried back to Shechem and were placed in the tomb that Abraham had bought for a sum of silver for the sons of Hamor in Shechem. So here, this is recounting um, the story from around uh, Genesis 40 to the end of uh, Genesis to the first uh, verses in uh, Exodus. Um, so here, he's just recounting the story that they would have all known well. Uh, as y'all know, he's mentioned Jacob several times here. Jacob, of course, is renamed Israel. And that's where the nation gets its name from. Um, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, all these are, are common names. So, so far, uh, nothing, nothing out of the ordinary. He's just rehearsing their, their history for him. Uh, Acts 7, 17, top of page 37. It says, now as the time was drawing nearer to fulfill the promise that God had made to Abraham, the people flourished and multiplied in Egypt until a different king who did not know Joseph ruled over Egypt. And he dealt deceitfully with our race and oppressed our ancestors by making them leave their infants outside so they wouldn't survive. At this time, Moses was born 
and he was beautiful in God's sight. He was cared for in his father's home for three months. And when he was left outside, Pharaoh's daughter adopted him and raised him as her own. So Moses was educated in all the wisdom of the Egyptians and was powerful in his speech and actions. Again, very well-known story from the first part of Exodus, right? Um, the Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, uh, realizes that the, the, the Israelites have multiplied beyond control, if they ever got it in their mind to rebel, and he decides to, to slow them down a bit. And so we have the genocide of the children. But uh, Moses' mother um, and a sister takes him out and puts him in the river, if you remember that, and he floats down, and it just so happens that <laughs> he winds up in Pharaoh's house. You, you, you can't plan something that good, right? <laughs> Incredible. Um, <laughs> And this is, this is a common theme that we're going to see in Acts. And that is that when the Lord raises up a leader or somebody to move the people, usually he spent their entire life before that preparing them for that very thing. Right? Moses is going to lead Israel out of captivity in Egypt. And who better to do that than somebody that's been raised in Pharaoh's household that knows how everything works, but also has his connection to the Hebrew people. Right? It's, I mean, absolutely, awesomely incredible. Um, very similar thing uh, here in the next chapters. We're going to hear um, a guy should come up on the scene by the name of Saul. And Saul is a young disciple of the rabbi Gamaliel. And Gamaliel has been training his students not only in the interpretation of the Jewish law and all the customs and traditions, but he has his students read the most prominent Greek philosophers so that they're well-versed in Hellenistic Greek culture. And um, that man, <laughs> Jesus is going to get a hold of and say, hey, you're going to be my representative that I'm going to send before the Gentiles and kings and leaders and all the rest. And Paul has been perfectly uh, suited for it. In fact, in Galatians, he says, uh, when God set me apart from my mother's womb. In other words, God had been preparing Paul even before he was born. For the purpose, God was preparing Moses before he was even born. And the, the point is this, you know, as we're reading through the book of Acts, the Lord didn't give them a blueprint of how this was going to play out. And in fact, a lot of things we're going to see happen. You can't explain except to say God intervened in these ways, oftentimes in miraculous ways, to bring his plans to fruition, to bring his promises to fruition. And he's been preparing these people for the roles they're going to play. And so we, we see this in the story here. And Moses is a, is a great example of that. Acts 7.23, he, he goes on. Um, it says, now as he was approaching the age of 40, he decided to visit his brothers, the Israelites. And when he saw one of them being mistreated, he came to his rescue and avenged the oppressed man by striking down the Egyptian. Now he assumed his brothers would understand that God would give them deliverance through him, but they did not understand. That's a really interesting insight because that is what happens in the book of Exodus. Uh, 726, now the next day he showed up while they were fighting and tried to reconcile them peacefully saying, Men, your brothers, why are you mistreating each other? Now think about that for a minute. Why does he include that little detail? Right? Because the Sadducees and the Pharisees and the disciples of Jesus, they're all brothers. This, this thing that's being worked out in your midst, this whole Jesus movement thing, 
It's the completion of God's promises, and we're all brothers in it. Why are we fighting with one another over it, right? Why is this dividing us out when it should be the thing that's bringing us together? Also, just like <laughs> the Israelites didn't realize that Moses was their deliverer, so now this current generation, they don't realize that Jesus is their deliverer, right? So you can see the connections that he's subtly making here in this. Verse 27, 727. He said, uh, but the one who was mistreating his neighbor pushed him away saying, who, who appointed you a ruler and a judge over us? Do you want to kill me the same way you killed the Egyptian yesterday? So here, the people, they don't understand who Moses is and, and who appointed you ruler and judge over us. And who's the, what's the answer to that? God did, right? Um, <laughs> can't argue with that, but they do. Uh, 729. Now at this disclosure, Moses fled and became an exile in the land of Midian, where he fathered two sons. And then after 40 years had passed, an angel appeared to him in the wilderness of Mount Sinai in the flame of a burning bush. Um, uh, Something critical there, 730. The word angel in both Greek and Hebrew, it just means messenger, right? A messenger appeared to him in the bush uh, talking to him. And so here uh, we know that story, right? This is 40 years. Notice how he's dividing Moses' life into 40-year segments, which is what Exodus does as well. Uh, the first 40, Moses is being trained. The second 40, he's leading uh, Israel. Uh, back toward the Holy Land. So after 40 years had passed, an angel appeared to him in the wilderness of Mount Sinai, flame in the burning bush. 731, when Moses saw it, he was amazed at the sight, and he was approaching to look at it. Uh, the voice of the Lord came. 732, I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So Moses began to tremble and did not dare to look. Most famous story in Exodus, right? Moses is out tending the sheep as a shepherd, cattle, and the Lord appears to him in Mount Sinai in a burning bush and speaks to him. And then this is what he says to him, Acts 7.33. Then the Lord said to him, remove you the sandals from your feet, for the place where you're standing is holy ground. And I have observed the oppression of my people in Egypt. I've heard their groaning and have come down to rescue them. And now come, I will send you to Egypt. This Moses whom they rejected when they said, who appointed you as a ruler and judge? This one God sent as a ruler and a redeemer by means of the angel who appeared to him in the bush. Uh, notice uh, two, two words, a ruler and a redeemer. See that saying some of the same ideas that are applied to Jesus in, in Acts. 736, this man led them out and performed wonders and signs in the land of Egypt, at the Red Sea, and in the wilderness for 40 years. So there he is. He's, he's going to lead. Uh, he's going to lead the people of Israel uh, in, that, in that latter 40-year segment of his life. Four, uh, 473. I'm sorry, 773. 737. I'm looking at two different, two different notes. 737. I didn't lose my mind. Uh, 737. Now, this is the Moses who said to the Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your brothers. Now, we've already seen that. Peter's already quoted that very passage. That's Deuteronomy 18.5. And Peter's already quoted that in his last sermon, saying that Jesus was the prophet that God had raised up like Moses. 
So here he's talking about even Moses foresaw the coming of this other prophet. That's also going to be significant in the next chapter when we move towards Samaria. And I'll talk about it when we get over there. There's something really big about that going on. 738 says, now he is the one who was in the congregation in the wilderness together with the angel who spoke to him on Mount Sinai and with our ancestors. He received living oracles to give to us. Uh, so there, that's talking about the, the five books of Moses, right? Well, really the four. Uh, Deuteronomy is written at the end of his life, but here Moses receives the, the first four of his books while they're in the wilderness. 739, our, our ancestors were unwilling to obey him, but pushed him away, and in their hearts they turned back to Egypt. And they told Aaron, make us gods who will go before us. As for this Moses who brought us out of the land of Egypt, we don't know what's happened to him. If you remember when Moses was up on Mount Sinai receiving the instruction, he was up there so long, they thought, well, he's not coming back. We don't know what's going on. And they instructed Aaron to build the golden calf for him, uh, golden idols that they could worship and that would go before him. Um, so they're, they're turning back to things that they would have known in Egypt. Um, you know, through the Egyptian religions and so forth and so on. Um, verse 41, uh, they even made a calf in those days, offered, a sac offered sacrifice to the idol and were celebrating what their hands had made. Underline that. Celebrating what their hands had made. 742, then God turned away and gave them up to worship the host of heaven as it is written in the book of the prophets. Uh, House of Israel, did you bring me offerings and sacrifices 40 years in the wilderness? No, you took up the tent of Moloch and the star of your god Rephan and the images that you made to worship. So I will deport you beyond Babylon. Uh, so here, this is one of the things that Moses talked about. Um, and, and particularly in the book of Deuteronomy, I think we talked about this a little bit. In Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy is Moses' last sermon to Israel, and it's the sermon that he gives to them, the new generation. Uh, if you remember the, the, the generation that came out of Egypt, they did not follow the Lord in faith. When they sent spies into the land and they saw the giants and all that was going in there, they didn't want to go in and take over the land. And the Lord said, okay, well, then y'all are going to wander in the wilderness for 40 years until y'all all die off. And then once y'all have died off, your children are going to go in and you'll take over the land. So Moses has been wandering around with that generation for 40 years until it passes away. And then Deuteronomy, the new generation that's led by Joshua and Caleb, they're going to go in and take over the land. And Moses gives him his final sermon in the book of Deuteronomy. That's what it is, as they're just about to go in and take over the land. And the awesome thing about that sermon is Moses says, listen, as y'all go in to take over the land, you've got to be very careful to do what the Lord God has instructed you. And more than anything else, you've got you've to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and you've got to trust Him. That's the key. If you, if you do that, all the other laws will fall into place. But if you don't do that, then He's going to spew you out of the land and He's going to send you into exile again. And i got bad news for you. That's exactly what's going to happen. That's exactly what y'all are going to do. You're not going to be careful to love the Lord your God. And so he's going to cast you out of the land. But after you've been in exile, he'll restore you and bring you back. That's all in Deuteronomy. Moses prophetically sees exactly what's going to happen over the next you know, roughly 600 years of his, his Israelite history. Um, and so really incredible. And that's, 
That's you know what Mo, uh, Stephen has condensed down for us uh, here. And during that 40 years of wandering, y'all know that they turned to idolatry. They turned to the worship of the foreign gods. And even when they went into the land under Joshua and Caleb years later, they turned to idolatry. And that's what got them kicked out and sent to Assyria and then Babylon later. Uh, so here, you know, Stephen is making the point that, that we've always been prone to idolatry, worshiping anything except the one true God. So 744, top of page 39, he says, uh, Our ancestors had the tabernacle of the testimony in the wilderness, just as he who spoke to Moses commanded him to make it according to the pattern he had seen. Uh, if you remember, Moses was given the pattern to build the tabernacle, and then later the, the temple was built on that pattern. And that's, of course, patterned on what's actually in the heavenly realm, uh, where God literally dwells. And so Moses was shown the pattern of that at Mount Sinai, and then they built those things. 745, our ancestors in turn received it, and with Joshua brought it in when they dispossessed the nations that God drove out before our fathers until the days of David. Uh, so look at that. In one fell swoop, he goes from Joshua to David. And really, that is the whole period of the conquest. David is the king who actually finishes the conquest, the taking over of all the land that began with Joshua. It took them that long. And part of the reason was because they weren't careful to listen to what the Lord God instructed them to do along the way. Right? They, they rebelled at him still. And so here you get this big push from Joshua and the, the first generation that goes in to take over the land until the days of David. And then 746, it says, He, David, found favor in God's sight and asked that he might provide a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. But it was Solomon who built him a house. So David wants to build uh, the Lord a temple, but the Lord says, No, you can't. It's going to fall to your son. And so Solomon builds the Lord's temple. 748, now, here's the critical statement. However, the Most High does not dwell in sanctuaries made with hands, as the prophet says. Heaven is my throne and earth my footstool. What sort of house will you build for me, says the Lord? And what is my resting place? Did not my hand make all these things? That's a quote from Isaiah 66. Verses 1 and 2, Isaiah 66, verses 1 and 2. Now, remember, they're charging Stephen with speaking blasphemies against the temple. And what Stephen is subtly saying here is, that's just something y'all made. The God, the one true God does not dwell in sanctuaries made with human hands, right? He created everything that exists. How, how, how do you think he's going to be contained to one little house? That's there, right? And that goes back to the Old Testament itself, even as the Lord was, uh, in a sense, dwelling in the temple, right? He says through Isaiah, um, nobody can build anything for me to, to live in, right? Uh, <laughs> Heaven is my throne and earth my footstool. What can you build for me that's bigger than that, right? And so notice, Stephen is not tearing down the idea of the temple. He's just saying, you've got to expand your view of who God is. Right. And that's exactly what's happening in the book of Acts. And I don't think Stephen is even fully aware that God is expanding um, and fulfilling his promises that are going to be fulfilled in a way that's far grander than anybody has ever gotten their mind around. 
right? And that's the way the Lord God does anything, uh, does everything. And so here, Stephen is already getting, getting ready for that. But also he's downplaying this idea that the temple is the place where God dwells only, right? He, he doesn't just dwell in the temple. He's not just with us. In fact, he's everywhere, right? Uh, and then he gets to the point, <laughs> he gets to the exclamation mark in his sermon here. Acts 6, uh, 7, 51. You stiff-necked people with uncircumcised hearts and ears, you are always resisting the Holy Spirit just like your ancestors did. So do you. Which of the prophets that your fathers not persecute? They even kill those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whose betrayers and murderers you have now become. Woo, look at that. Wow. Um. 753, you receive the law under the direction of angels, and yet you have not kept it. So he's, he's, you know, they're saying you've blasphemed both the temple and the law. And, and Stephen says in his sermon, you don't realize what the temple is. And how can you accuse me of keeping the law when none of y'all have kept it either? Very similar argument that Peter is going to make in Acts 15 when they're trying to figure out as the Gentiles are being brought into the promises, well, should we put them under the law of Moses, you know, with circumcision and keeping the 613 commandments? And Peter gets up in the middle of that and says, why would we put them under something that neither we nor our forefathers have been able to keep? It doesn't make any sense, right? So, so here, uh, Stephen charges them with doing the very things that they're charging him of. Right. You 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 haven't just blasphemed the temple. You blaspheme the name of God by rejecting his word and will for you. you've killed the prophets. Uh, you even kill the prophets who announced the coming of the righteous one. Now, that's that's got to be a clear reference to Isaiah. Uh, one of the unique titles of the coming redeemer in Isaiah is the righteous one, the righteous one. You see that all throughout Isaiah. And. Um, I think I've mentioned this before. This is going to show up several more times. Isaiah is in the background of so much of what Luke writes here. He draws from images in Isaiah. He draws from specific scriptures in Isaiah, like Stephen does here, drawn on Isaiah 66. And we'll talk more about that as we go along. But, but Isaiah is very, very um, prominent in the, in the background and the undergirding of what uh, Luke is writing out and, and the way he uh, writes it out. Uh, Acts 7.51 there, uh, I want to say something about that. Don't miss this. First of all, he says, y'all are stiff-necked people. If you remember, it's exactly what God himself called Israel during the time we was trying to get them back to the Holy Land under Moses. You're stiff-necked. And that means they're stubborn and resistant, right? Um, I, I, I grew up just right outside of the farm, uh, you know, outside of the era when my family was farming. And I can remember my, my grandfather talking about having a stick-necked, stick -necked, stiff-necked horse or mule that you can't turn to one side or the other, you know. Uh, one of the funniest stories I ever heard in my life involved my grandfather and a mule and it almost killing him, but I don't have time for that right now. Uh, so that's, that's, that's the idea there, right? The Lord is trying to turn you, but you won't turn. You're... You're like unreasoning animals, right? You're just doing your own thing. And then he says this, and this notice the parallel here. He says, You're, you, you have uncircumcised hearts and ears. If you remember back when he talked about Abraham, 
the sign that God gave to set Abraham and his descendants and the promises apart was circumcision. So to not be circumcised was to be cut off from the people of God. And that's what he's saying to him. You're just like people who, are, who have been cut off from the promises themselves, right? But, but here, notice, he says that they're uncircumcised of hearts and ears. Hearts and ears are not normally what are circumcised. I don't know where we are. Um, and, and, the, and the idea here is, is that, that their hearts are dull and that their ears are not receptive, right, to what the Lord is saying to them. Um, y'all have constantly rebelled, and now we've come to this. Not only have you rejected the prophets, but now you've, you have betrayed and you've murdered the righteous one, the very person that all the prophets had talked about, and the very person that we've been looking for, the Messiah, the one that would come and redeem us. Well, y'all know how this ends up. Top of page 40, 754. Now, I told y'all we would come to a point where we would pick up some speed. I just want y'all to look. We just, we just went through as many verses as we've gone through in the first eight weeks of this class. Or uh, 754, it says, Now, when they heard these things, they were enraged in their hearts and gnashed their teeth at him. Um, that's a, this is a great place to see what uh, Jesus probably means where he talks about the destruction to come, where there will be much weeping and gnashing of teeth, right? Gnashing of teeth is what a dog does. I'm so mad, I just ah, grip my teeth and go at it. Um, that's what they're doing to him. I mean, he has bent them out of shape. 755, but Stephen, filled with the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and he saw God's glory with Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Uh, this, this sermon is, is also in a kind of a chiastic structure. It begins in the same place that it ends. When they first saw Stephen, his face looked like an angel. And now we get a fuller explanation that as he looks up into heaven, he sees God's glory, right? Uh, and that's usually what happens when somebody um, uh, has taken on the appearance of the Lord, right? Uh, showing, uh, uh, reflecting his glory and so forth. He saw God's glory with Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, 756, look, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. That is um, clearly a reference to Jesus' favorite title for himself in the Gospels. Jesus over and over refers to himself as the Son of Man, if you remember that. And that, of course, is drawn from Daniel 7. Uh, and let me just let me read a snippet of that, because this is so important. Daniel seven um, is, you know, of course, all of Daniel is powerful and uh, talks about the Lord's purposes and plans. as He's working out the redemption to come and the coming of Jesus. But in Daniel seven, uh, Daniel has this vision of these four beasts that come. And uh, these beasts that he sees in this, in this night, in this dream, in this night vision, all represent four empires that come one after the other. And then finally, uh, he sees the coming of the kingdom of God that displaces all of those other kingdoms. And this is what he says. This is in Daniel 7, 9. Uh, I'm going I'm to read a, a pretty good bit of that. Daniel 7, 9, he says, Now as I looked, thrones were set up, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. So there's God himself. 
His clothing was white as snow and the hair of his head was like pure wool. His throne was like fiery flames. Its wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire issued and came out from before him and thousands upon thousands served him and 10,000 times 10,000 stood before him. And the court sat in judgment and the books were opened. So here this is the Lord convening his court. And thousands upon ten thousands, right? The, the, the hosts of heaven, the angelic armies in heaven are arrayed before him, apparently. Eleven, it says, uh, Then I looked because of the sound of the great words that the horn was speaking. Uh, earlier, uh, one of the beasts had come up and one of the horns on his head, which represents this final world rule of the beast, the Antichrist. He blasphemes God. And uh, that's what Daniel's talking about, the horn. He says, as I look, this beast was killed and its body was destroyed and given over to be burned with fire. And as for the rest of the beast, their dominion was taken away, but their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. In other words, this is, this is seeing the uh, destruction of all the earthly kingdoms that are in uh, rebellion against the one true kingdom. Then verse 13, he says, and then I saw in these night visions and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man, and he came to the ancient of days. And he was presented before him, and here it is, listen to this. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages would serve him. You hear that? That all peoples, nations, and languages would serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away. And his kingdom is one that will not be destroyed. That's, that's Daniel seeing this centuries before. And when Jesus takes up that title, son of man, that's what he has in mind. I'm the one that Daniel saw. My kingdom is coming. And when it comes, it will never end. It'll be an everlasting kingdom, right? And that's in the background of everything we're going to see in the book of Acts. Remember, it's the, the question that the, the last question the disciples asked Jesus is, is it at this time that you're restoring the kingdom of heaven, right? No. And then we're going to hear about the kingdom more and more and more. And in the background of all this is the idea that, that Jesus is the one. He's the son of man that Daniel saw that's going to bring this everlasting kingdom. And of course, the leadership, they're in complete rebellion against him, against the righteous one. Here, uh, Stephen sees him. He sees Jesus at the right hand uh, of God. And he, and he sees him standing there. And he, and he tells him that's what he sees. Uh, by the way, that, that title, Son of Man, this, this is the only place outside of the Gospels that that title is used of Jesus apart from the book of Revelation. It doesn't show up in any of the letters, anywhere else. It's only in the Gospels, here, and in the book of Revelation, which is really interesting. Um, now, 757, here's what happens. Then they screamed at the top of their voices and covered their ears and together rushed against him. Uh, let, me, let me also say this is exactly what happens to Jesus at his trial before the high priest. Um, they're asking him who he is and what he's about. And um, eventually Jesus says, you know, um, one day you'll see the Son of Man 
coming in the clouds of glory, quoting from the same passage from Daniel 7. And the high priest becomes enraged and he gets up and tears his robes and says, this man is blasphemed, if you remember that. So here, this, this what happens to Stephen is meant to in some way parallel what happened to Jesus when he was on trial before these same leaders. Uh, he just bends them out of shape. 758, now they threw him out of the city and they began to stone him. And the witnesses laid their robes at the feet of a young name, man named Saul. Oh, that, he, hmm, circle that. That, that guy might be important. Uh, we might see him again. So y'all... Circle that name. We're going to come back around to that one. 759. Now they were stoning Stephen as he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And then he knelt down and cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not charge them with this sin. And saying this, he fell asleep. That's a great way to say it. Right? Uh, that actually comes from uh, Jewish culture and tradition at that time. When, when people in the people of God died, they would say they had fallen asleep. Uh, particularly among the Pharisees, because the Pharisees believed in the resurrection. Um, so they didn't see physical death as the end to existence, right? So, and and that becomes one of, the, one of the phrases that's used in the early church as well. Uh, notice again how this parallels Jesus. Um, two, two of the things that Jesus says on the cross. Uh, on the cross, Jesus says, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Here, this is really interesting. Notice who Stephen addresses. Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. One, one of the questions, one of the most asked questions I get um, is, is it okay to pray to Jesus? And I always say they do all throughout the book of Acts. Paul prays to him. Peter prays to him. So yeah, I would say it so. I have actually heard people say there's nobody who prays to Jesus in the New Testament. And I think, well, you probably haven't read the same New Testament I've read. Because who is Stephen praying to there? Jesus. He's talking to Jesus, right? Yes. Isn't it interesting how the leaders responded yeah. differently? Yeah. Go back to Acts 2, 37. They were the people. Yes. Pierced in their heart. Yes. What must we do? That's right. Here. We can do that here. Yeah. There is, there's no sense of repentance or turning. And, and, it's, and, and, and the really interesting thing is, uh, you know, as we've gone through these episodes where the apostles or somebody comes before the leaders, at first they, they say, we can't do anything with them. We're going to send them out. Right. Just don't talk about Jesus. Right. Then Peter goes out and preaches again and says, listen, you better turn. Right. So as they preach, there's this constant amping up of we're giving you these opportunities. But there's also this amping up. First time they turn them out, tell them don't preach. Second time they turn them loose and say and flog them before they turn them loose. And then the third time. They kill Stephen. They are, yeah, yeah. They, and, and remember, and remember, this whole thing started. Look, look back over. This is such an important point. Uh, if, if you look back over to where they, uh, where they bring them in, uh, see. What, yeah, I think it's, um, no, wait a minute. It's further, further back than that. It's where he comes. I thought it was right before. Stephen had come into them. Well, shoot, what can I not see? Where is, it's, it's where uh, one of them says, look, oh yeah, uh, 527, page 32. 527, this is where they, the last time when they brought Peter and John uh, before them, 
to try to figure out what to do with them. 527, it says, uh, after they brought them in, they had them stand before the Sanhedrin and the high priest asked, didn't we strictly order you not to teach in this name? Now look, you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and are determined to bring this man's blood on us. Now, Peter had subtly been doing that. But what does, what does Stephen say? Stephen takes it up. You even killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one. And now you are his betrayers and murderers. Right. So, yeah, I mean, it's everything in this is amping up, amping up, amping up. And so here they they uh, they kill Stephen. And this is this is really interesting because this is the point at which everything's going to turn in the book. And we'll see that in chapter eight. Uh, in fact, look at eight one. This, this is one of those um, unfortunate places where I, I don't think they put the chapter division in the right place. Because there, top page 40, 8.1a, it just says Saul agreed to putting them to death. Right. And in fact, not only is it the wrong place to put the chapter, you have to divide the verse in two to get the, the idea right. You know, it's probably one of those places where the guy was riding the horse and the pen <laughs> fell down in the wrong spot. You know, uh, if you know how the Bible was versified. There's, there's nothing inspired about the verses and chapters in the Bible. Uh, just, just people doing the, the best they can. So here, uh, Saul agrees to putting him to death. And of course, that's going to introduce Saul as he's going to show up in chapter 8 immediately. But this is the turning point. This is where that is the last episode where the church in Jerusalem is focused on. And beginning in chapter 8, now we're going to move out from Jerusalem and go into Judea and then Samaria, and then ultimately to the remotest parts of the earth. Just like Jesus had said in chapter 1, right? Remember he said to the apostles, you're going to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, and then Judea, and then Samaria, and then to the remotest parts of the earth. So now we're starting to see the Lord fulfill uh, his plans and purposes, as he had said right there in chapter one. Uh, now, any questions or comments on, on any of that? Uh, you know, that, that's fairly easy to, to follow along. But if I missed anything, yeah, let me know. Yes. I just am amazed at how easy stoning was. I mean, I'm thinking yeah. Jesus and the adulterous woman. And yes. Is there some history behind that? Or, I mean, it just seems like you just get mad and you can do it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, what are they going to do? It's, it's, it's one of those things that it's... Uh, Kind of the thing of it's it's easier to uh, it, it's it's yeah it's often easier to to ask for forgiveness rather than permission you know because um, because the nation of Israel did, did technically did not have the say so over capital punishment on larger issues but yeah you, you had times where they would pull people out and want to stone them and take care of the situation you know and and and, and also you know stoning is such a um, graphic, terrible way to kill somebody, that it also becomes a point of great shame that, that you know, showing that we're going to treat this person basically like an animal, you know. Also, you know, it's, um, it's a pretty easy way to, to kill somebody because there's stones everywhere, you know. I mean, and it's, I mean, it's, it's really horrific when you think about it, you know. All right, we got just a little bit of time. Let's, let's jump on into a little bit of chapter eight. And uh, kind of get things set in place here. 8.1b, so the way, the way this is divided up, we're, you know, we're in the middle of, of verse 1 of chapter 8. Uh, and this is what happens. Now on that day, a severe persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem, and all except the apostles were scattered throughout the land of Judea and Samaria. 
and devout men buried Stephen and mourned deeply over him. Saul, however, was ravaging the church. He would enter house after house, drag off men and women, and put them in prison. And so those who were scattered went on their way, preaching the message of the good news. Now, something is really interesting here, and I'm not sure, I don't want to say too much, and I don't want to say too little, but, but to me, it's fascinating. Well, let me, let me read something else first. Uh, something else happens here. And I see a lot of commentators jump over this, and I don't know if I'm seeing something that's not there or, or, or what. Um, but going back to the, you know, the last teaching that Jesus gives, not the last, but some of the last teaching that Jesus gives the apostles in Luke 24. Uh, this is on the, the night of his resurrection where he's telling them about what's going to happen. Uh, and this is Luke 24:46. It says, Now he said to them, uh, Thus it is written that the Messiah would suffer on, and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all the nations beginning from Jerusalem. And you are my witnesses of these things. Right? And behold, I'm sending the promise to my father. Uh, stay clothed uh, until the power from one eye. Jesus, all throughout the Gospels, it calls the twelve his apostles, which literally means those who are sent out. Sent out as emissaries for Jesus. And later, Paul is going to talk about being an apostle. And one of the things that he says is, is that we apostles were tasked primarily with taking the message to people who have never heard before. The, the apostles are to be the, the pioneers to take the message out into new people groups. And we're going to see Peter and them doing that. The persecution breaks off and what happens to the apostles? They stay in Jerusalem. And Jesus has already told them, you're, you're, you're going to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, right, Samaria, and then through remotest parts of the earth. Now, the thing I think is they, they still don't get what's going on here, Right? It still hasn't fully sunk in what all that's going to mean. Now, I say that because we know that eventually the apostles are going to leave Jerusalem and go out all over the place. You know, uh, the 12th, Thomas winds up in India, as far as we can tell. One of, the, one of the apostles, we're not sure who, we know that he makes it far inland into China. You know, just incredible, incredible things that happen. Peter is going to travel. He's going to wind up in Asia Minor. Uh, more than likely winding up in Rome. So we know they're going to be scattered. But here, everybody's scattered except the apostles. <laughs> they're, they're, they're staying in Jerusalem. And, and, you know, and, and it, this, this is probably that human mindset of, you know, Jerusalem is the nucleus of this whole thing, and they are the respected leadership, right? They're, they're the respected ones that everybody's looking to, and they're probably thinking, well, if we leave, this whole thing's going to fall apart, you know? So we probably need to stay at the headquarters of this thing. But that Jesus never intended the church to be like that. Anytime the true church tries to make a central location on planet Earth and make a headquarters and start having a hierarchy, God says, no, 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 no. That's not the way this is going to work. This was always meant to be a much more radical thing. This is meant to be a movement, not a religion. And there's a huge difference, right? Whenever you start creating a religion, you have, you have hierarchies and people wearing funny hats and funny robes and 
Some things turn into rituals and ceremonies, and then you get church splits because of the carpet and the building, right? That we're not even, yeah, what kind of music we're going to play. Oh, man, it gets all kind of great. But that's not what God intended this movement to be, right? And so he sent... (laughs) Y'all, again, I can't, Luke does not make this case. But I think, in a sense, God sends this persecution to send them out. They're they're, they're getting too dug in here. And so he he sends this persecution and and the people move out and they begin to do the very thing that the the Lord had told them to do. Uh, And you can can see that. Uh, Saul... Saul is the one who is presented here as one of the, the primary persecutors of the church. And I find that really interesting because tradition tells us that Saul was a student of Gamaliel, this, the one that we heard about in chapter 5. He said, let's not mess with him. Yeah, yeah, leave him alone. And here one of his key disciples is doing the very opposite of that, right? Clearly, there, clearly there's a break there. There's a rift. No, no, no. We've we, we got to shut this thing down. Which is really interesting. Yes. When Paul went to all those other places, yeah. and all those other places, yes. there were already some established churches there. Yes. Uh huh. Yeah. And, and in fact, in uh, people here that left Jerusalem for fear of persecution and death. That's right. To go to other places. So yes. Yeah. God sort of worked it in a different way. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, and also, Paul. I think. He, I think he says in Romans. Is it Romans or. I think it's in the Romans. He, he talks about it as he's going out and preaching the gospel. He, when he would come to a place and he found out there's already a group of Christians there, he wouldn't preach. He wouldn't try to plant the seed again. Right. He would go into somewhere else. And he said, uh, I make it my goal not to build on another man's foundation. Instead, to go out to those who haven't heard before. So, yeah. So this dispersion, you know, people go all over the place. And also, you know, if you think about it, you, you've had all these disciples that are there during Pentecost and so forth and so on. Some of those probably journeyed down, to, journeyed down to Jerusalem, became followers of Jesus, and then they go back to their homes, and there they start churches there, start assemblies of it. Yeah, it's incredible the way the Lord works that. Uh, also, uh, and, and I'll, I'll read this last thing, and then we'll, then we'll break for today. Acts 8, um, 5, at the top of page 41. Let me just show you how this ties in, and we'll pick up here next week. It says, 8.5, Philip went down to a city in Samaria and proclaimed the Messiah to them. And the crowds paid, paid attention with one mind uh, to what Philip said. And as they heard and saw the signs he was performing, for unclean spirits crying out with a loud voice came out of many who were possessed and many who were paralyzed and lame were healed. So there was great joy in that city. Philip is not one of the 12. Philip is one of the seven who was picked back when they were picking the the seven uh, deacons, uh, administrators, to oversee what was going on there. And so what uh, chapter 8 starts to show us is is that this uh, spread of the gospel is not just going to be limited to the the apostles. It's going to take place through all the people of the church. Even Stephen, one one of the seven, these other proselytes, as Russell was talking about, that heard the gospel and then they go back. In fact, we, we know that because later... Much later, I think it's in chapter 19 or 20, Paul is out on his missionary journeys and they run into a group of disciples uh, <laughs> that are there. And right, they're, they, they're looking for the Messiah. They were baptized by John. They think the Messiah has come, but they don't know anything else. 
And so, right, so we, we, we see how these things have spread very organically and very powerfully. But this, this chapter is meant to show us that um, nothing can stop the spread of this thing. That, that God, it's exactly what Gamaliel had said. If God is behind this, then nobody can stand opposed to it. And if we fight against it, we may even find ourselves fighting against God. And that, that's, the, that's the awesome thing that I see about Acts that still carries forward even to today. And that is that the, this movement that Jesus is working, there is no human institution, there is no human will that can stop the thing or slow it down. And in fact, if you willfully try to do that, you just make things 10 times worse. Uh, yes, Ann? And yet, in our current culture, many of us in churches think the idea of discipleship belongs only to pastors. Yeah. Yeah. It's everybody. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. We have to assume that they That's right. Yeah. That's right. We are now, we are now in a sense what God intended for Israel and that we are a kingdom of, of priests. Not a kingdom with priests. We are a kingdom of priests. All of us have been equipped and gifted to do what the Lord wants us to do. And, and again, our gifts are going to mean it looks different for each of us, but man, we're all working together. And we're, we're going to see that in Acts too as that starts to flower. and Yeah, that's, that's a great point, Ann. All right, y'all, we're a little bit over. Let me go ahead and pray for us and get us, um, get us closed out here, and we'll pick up right there in chapter 8 next week. Father, we thank you again for the opportunity we have to get together. We thank you for your word, which still speaks so powerfully to us uh, today, even as we read it. Stephen, who gave this speech uh, over 2,000 years ago, uh, it still, uh, in a very powerful way, shows that the word that you've given to us uh, at the time of Moses and then at the time of Stephen, that it all fits together and it all works together in a way that shows us your precious and most magnificent promises that you've been working out all throughout human history. And some of it is hard for us to get our minds around and to, and to fully comprehend the incredible things that, that you're doing. But Lord, uh, we do know this, all of this is working toward the coming of your kingdom in which righteousness truly dwells. And as we live in the midst of this twisted and uh, perverse generation, this dark culture that we find ourselves in the midst of, just like all of our uh, brothers and sisters did in every generation before us, we long for the coming of that kingdom. And we long for the return of our Lord Jesus to set everything right and put everything in its right place, uh, to bring the joy and the fulfillment of His promises in a way that we can't even get our minds around or even fully appreciate right now. And so, Lord, with that in mind, we pray constantly, come quickly, Lord Jesus. And it's in His awesome and powerful name uh, we ask all this. Amen.